This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are gonna talk about it all. Dr. Tobias Kretenauer is a professor of psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University, where he directs the Morality, Identity, and Environmental Sustainability Research Group. He's also a consulting editor for child development and an associate editor of the Journal of Moral Education. Dr. Kretenauer's current work examines morality and sustainability, the relationship between moral identity and moral emotions, and how moral identity is shaped by culture. He is most known, however, for his focus on how moral identity develops in adolescence and adulthood, which we discuss in this episode. Today we're going to be talking about the concept of moral identity, what it is, and how it develops because, as Tobias says, it doesn't just drop out of the sky. There's some sort of a developmental trajectory that should be involved, at least theoretically. Um, But before we go there, uh, first of all, just thank you for being with me. Thank you for inviting me to have that interview. (laughs) And, uh, And as always, I like to start off with hearing backstories. So I'd love to hear about how you became interested in psychology and then moral identity in particular. Okay, um, great. Yes, um, so I, I started a little bit um, far away. Um, I mean, I actually have my own personal kind of theory about what makes people interested in moral psychology in the oh. first place. And uh, I had a chance to uh, listen to some of the podcasts they already posted. And uh, uh, my <laughs> kind of personal theory, personal observation is that many people who have an interest, particular interest in moral psychology, they very, of, very often have a religious upbringing. And uh, <laughs> uh, some of them break away and uh, say, this is not something I want to further continue. Others grow into their religious commitments. And uh, I have to say, I'm the first category. I mean, I was raised in a Catholic family, and uh, uh, it was not a kind of dogmatic Catholicism, but it was just part of the normal family life. But I remember very early, late childhood, early teenage years, I kind of found out this is not something uh, I want to pursue. And I see many other people who are interested in moral psychology have similar histories. Now, that does not say that sometimes people (laughs) come from a secular background, they also have interest in morality, moral psychology, but that's more rare. So, in any case, so that's was the very first thing I wanted to say. Um, when you have this kind of background, you use this language of good and bad, uh, right and wrong, and um, that has a strong religious uh, kind of footing or foundation. And mm. uh, when you move out of that, you of course you ask yourself, where can I put that language? I mean, yeah. Where does it come from, and how can I still use it? And that certainly is something that happened to me quite early, um, and that drew me into interest. Uh, interest. I mean, I was very much interested in morality in general, and yeah. and not so much psychology, morality. So, where does this language of good and bad come from? How can I make sense to it? And um, that's certainly one route. Then another one, I have to say. You hear from my accent, English is not my first language. I'm actually German. I grew up in Germany. And um, 
I grew up at a time in this country, 1970s, early 1980s, where um, what people call in German, now we use this long German word, I mean, Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung or the Vergangenheitsbewältigung, what the Germans say, that they, I mean, where they started to deeply reflect on Nazi history and mm -hmm. how could that happen. This didn't happen right away after World War II, but it started oh. in the 1960s and then was really on top of the agenda of many, for many people in the 1970s and 80s in the schools, everywhere people talked about what happened during World War II. And for me, as a that time kind of child, early young teenager, this was very kind of um, important uh, because I got this deep sense uh, that we really have to have a strong foundation for our morality. If we don't have that, it can easily be swept away. Yeah. Um, and uh, that happened in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, and it happened in other countries, and it can happen again. So this mm -hmm. sense of morality is really important to have a strong foundation for it. At the same time, not really knowing where my foundation is, um, that were biographically really important motivations, why I was mm -hmm. always interested in ethics and morality. And um, well, for some reason, and then I started to study psychology. Um, I have to say the first couple of semesters I studied, I wasn't really excited about it. <laughs> uh, but then I discovered uh, Piaget and Kohlberg uh, and the Piaget and Kohlberg uh, uh, theories. And I was really hooked from the very moment. I mean, this idea of a constructivist view on moral development. It's not mm -hmm. only that we kind of receive certain message from society or teachers or parents, but that we construct to some extent mm. our own morality in, I mean, not as individuals, but as social beings. And um, that really, I mean, hit me and, and got me interested in psychology in the first place. And then, of course, in developmental psychology in particular. Okay. Now, having said that, I mean, when I started to study psychology, developmental psychology, it was in the mid-80s, 1980s. Um, the um, Kohlberg was already kind of above uh, this the pinnacle, and it it started to decline in its, mm. in, in its influence. And then for my whole time, and I was a doctoral student and a postdoc and um, a researcher, junior researcher, I, I witnessed this kind of steep decline mm. um, of the Kohlberg's theory and really lost currency, as people say. And um, um, of course, that for me was a sense of, loss. At the mm. same time, I uh, I do see that, I mean, the decline of Kohlberg's theory, it just not, uh, it didn't just run out of fashion for whatever reasons, but it has deep problems. Um, uh, kind of from an empirical point of view, there are um, many holes mm. you can point at and you can say it doesn't hold water. Mm. And uh, so there are reasons why Kohlberg's theory lost this influence. Um, at the same time, I really think that um, Kohlberg has an important message to tell, or yeah, still, and uh, this has to do with the way he, in a very elegant and impressive way, was able to combine philosophical, psychological, and educational perspective and mm. bundle them together in one really interesting integrative framework and theory 
and he managed that, and because of that, he um, uh, gave this idea of more education, of more development, a lot of momentum, and the really integrated the field, and all of a sudden, there was such a thing as a field hmm. uh, where people actually could meet and talk about uh, more education, and that's the reason why we are at an MA conference like this here. Yeah. Um, and um, this is what Kohlberg achieved, and I think I use or I, I consider Kohlberg still as a kind of placeholder. I mean, he reminds us um, or he tells us that it's really important even for researchers today um, to find or define concepts and use them in their research that somehow have this integrative potential. And yeah. for me, the concept of moral identity is actually one of them. Interesting. Um, that's the kind of road uh, I, it took me to, to really got interested in moral identity and, uh, and do research, research in this area for the uh, last couple of years. Um, moral identity clearly has psychological um, meaning and significance, and it actually yeah, there are many psychological aspects that somehow fit into that. It's self-concept, um, emotions, of course, mm -hmm. motivation, action. All these things are uh, supposed to come together in the concept of moral identity. It clearly has connections to philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, virtue theory on the one hand, but also different uh, moral philosophies. I mean, it is compatible with virtue ethics, and deontological ethics at the same time. Right, yeah. So you can um, connect it with philosophical traditions. And at the same time, I think, uh, although that's still kind of dormant, um, identity, more identity is clearly also related to more character. And character has been the key concept in the, in the domain of education. Mm -hmm. So I see more identity as a concept that really can bridge these different disciplines and different perspectives. And that makes it very interesting. And potentially promising for me to work with that. Okay. Um, that's the reason why uh, I came to morality and uh, moral identity in particular as an object of my study. Okay. So that's, that's, a, that's a, thank you. That was an awesome story and backdrop to hear. Um, let's talk about moral identity. Let's hash it out a bit more. So. Um, Many of the listeners are involved in the community that we're here with. We're at AME right now for listeners, and um, a lot of people on the podcast are involved in AME and will be familiar with concepts of moral identity already, but some listeners are not. So when we talk about moral identity, wh what do you really mean by that? Okay, um, there's, again, a quick answer and a long answer. Um, I kind of find it, try to find a middle road. Um, okay. A, I mean, first we can say it's just uh, the intersection of two areas um, that all uh, that both matter in people's life. I mean, the two questions people uh, ask themselves. I mean, often who I am at the one side—that's the identity question, hmm. right—and then there is very often the question that comes up: What should I do? I mean, what kind of life do I want to live? And where these two questions meet. Um, this is where more identity actually yeah. happens, uh, put it that way. And uh, there is clearly, I think, an, an everyday uh, indicator uh, that, that 
tells me that everyone, every person has a, such a moral identity. I like to do the following thought experiments with students also in my classes. I tell them, okay, try to imagine um, a, a, a characteristic, a person characteristic you deeply admire in others and also think it is important for yourself. Um, many people come up with things like being honest, trustworthy, mm. uh, sometimes caring. Um, and uh, then I continue and say, now try to imagine you would, for whatever reason, lose that characteristic, mm. some trauma, maybe a medical kind of uh, intervention. And many people spontaneously come up with the uh, response, no, that's not possible. If that happened mm. to me, I wouldn't be the same person. I would be a different person. And it's interesting. Um, there's actually some research that used kind of that paradigm to study that systematically. And um, they uh, compared these kind of moral characteristics with other characteristics people normally think are really important to define my individuality, like my preferences. Um, teenagers, for instance, very important what kind of clothing style you have, yeah. what kind of food preferences you have or whatever. And when you ask this similar type of question, imagine you would like this type of food uh, for some time, but then you change uh, and you don't like it anymore. Um, people say, that's perfectly fine. That has, that's just yeah. kind of the surface level of me. Uh, that um, doesn't change me deep down. Whereas with morality, it really has this quality. These qualities are deeply anchored in myself, and if they change, I change as a person. Mm. So that tells me um, that moral identity is real and really is an aspect relevant of, an, a relevant aspect, sorry, of um, uh, how people experience themselves in their everyday life. Now, um, this is just kind of the more related to the phenomenology of, of moral identity and not so much to the psychological theory. How do hmm. psychologists talk about um, moral identity? And uh, as you first know from reading a little bit about this, I mean, there are generally two approaches people like to differentiate. Hmm. There is um, what people call a trait-based approach and uh, there is a uh, uh, what they call the sociocognitive approach. So trait-based approach basically means moral identity is a, a personality attribute that is stable um, mm. across times and also across context. is something um, you always carry with you if you want, uh, and it's always kind of salient to you. Whereas the sociocognitive approach basically means it has to be activated in a given situation. You have yeah. to kind of be reminded of your moral identity and if you are in a situation where you kind of this more active more identity is activated you are all of a sudden it is become salient to you then you also kind of it starts to influence what you think and feel and do in a given situation yeah so yeah well so i i was curious about that like how does you would said you have this personal theory that everybody has a moral identity to some degree um and that in a lot of other ways that people tend to self-identify, they are more willing to abandon that and still feel like their core self is the same. How active is moral identity typically compared to some of these other self-identifiers? So for instance, like political affiliation or like relational, relational stances like, oh, I am a mom or I am a brother, that type of a thing. I mean, 
This is certainly a, a dimension of individual differences, right? For right. some people, it is active almost all the time. Mm. Um, regardless of what situation you are actually in, you always have this small identity as a very important aspect of how you see yourself, regardless of the situation you are actually immersed in. And for other people, it is much more fluctuating attribute. Okay. It depends. They need more if you want contextual support um, to actually have that aspect of the self activated. That's um, certainly a um, um, a fact. I would say a psychological fact. Um, and so, sorry, is it okay if I? Yes, sure, so absolutely. How how does that? Um, get captured when we're doing, when we're trying to measure something like moral identity, right? Because there's presumably a behavioral difference between people who kind of perpetually think of themselves as having a moral identity and the person who doesn't tend to think of themselves as having that identity, but would still object to having honesty taken out of their personhood. I believe that... um we, in the end, in, in identity research, we need to find a middle road here, uh, mm. and we haven't really found yet. Um, okay. Uh, so um, most of the measures that are used to kind of measure more identity, they are uh, what people would call trait-based, right? You ask people, how important is it for you to be honest, caring, fair, um, and uh, without any uh, contextual kind of... Um, index attached to it. I mean, in my research, I really started to break, break away from that. And mm. uh, I asked people um, about the importance of these moral attributes in different contexts of their life. Uh, we um, started with uh, contrasting three contexts, I mean, family, um, school or work, depending whether it's an adolescent or an adult person we interview, and then the larger community and society. And what you find, for instance, that in the school and work context, more identity generally is much lower. Hmm. Uh, uh, family is always important for many people, and they really try their best, uh, authentically try their best to, uh, to show their morality to their family members. Uh, but in the school and work context, not that uh, strong. And interestingly, just a study uh, presented uh, here at this conference, uh, um, this morning, uh, we also compared with teenagers um, their moral identity with family and friends in relation to online contexts mm. when they are online. Um, yeah. And you see even a bigger difference. Uh, so online, being online, is the moral identity when you are online is even less important than the moral identity when you are in school. Interesting. Uh, and so it is uh, really... A, an attribute, a personality characteristic that is not a trait, I would say, um, but that varies a lot across contexts. That does not necessarily mean that all people follow the same pattern, of course. There are some people who are more consistent um, across a broad range of contexts and others that go more with the flow and uh, adjust their moral identity according to the situational characteristics. So. In my view, um, I think a trade-based approach that really thinks of more, of more identity as a generalized personality attribute uh, is one extreme. 
a sociocognitive approach is another extreme where we think it all depends on what kind of cues people receive in a given situation. A middle ground perhaps is most realistic where we see, yes, of course, there is some variation. Um, uh, moral identity in some contexts is more salient for many people mm -hmm. than in others. Uh, and it is as such an interesting question, what makes these context differences? Yeah. yeah. How, are you aware of any experience sampling um, or other kind of intensive Very good question, I have to say. Uh, that would be really something um, um, people should do more, I have to say, including myself. Uh, we really try to, I mean, capture the very moment and ask people how important uh, uh, has been uh, a personality, personality aspect of morality uh, related to morality in the last 10 minutes for you. Uh, and then what did you do? What did you just experience? I'm not aware of any study okay. that has been done in this area. And whoever wants to study more identity and wants to do something new should do that. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. And so, we can encourage people to do that. Yeah. yeah. There, it's a, I just recently collected some intensive longitudinal data and it's a steep learning curve, but it's fun. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to kind of backtrack a little bit um, in hashing out morality. You had mentioned earlier um, that you think moral identity kind of provides a bridge between deontological moralities and sort of a, a virtue ethics form of morality. And I think that's really interesting because when I was reading your paper about um, sort of the developmental precursors to moral identity, I was, I was caught by what felt like a tension between a deontology and a virtue ethics perspective on this. Um, so maybe I'll just get your reactions first. Yeah, and that's then. absolutely true. I mean, generally speaking, just to maybe for the for, for the personal listens, I mean, yeah. deontological theories are about individual actions and the question, what should I do in a given situation? What is the right thing to do? So you face a situation where you ask yourself, should I do this or this? And then you come up with an answer. Uh, that is the kind of the core um, interest or um, question you ask when you are going to approach morality from a deontological perspective. Now, virtue ethics uh, does not deal with specific situations and actions like this, but more in general, how do you want to lead your life? I mean, what what values matter most in the long term um, in order to um, lead a virtuous life? And virtue theories generally um, assume that leading or living a virtuous life also leads to happiness or flourishing, it's called. Uh, and um, so it kind of um, has a reason to do that. Now, um, I think from a psychological perspective, it's not a big problem to connect these two things. I mean, um, we, of course, face situations uh, every day where we ask ourselves, what should I do? You kind of feel a, maybe a certain conflict between conflicting interests and desires you have. Of course, the student who is kind of uh, writing an exam has the desire to excel in the exam. At the same time, you know it's not the right thing to do, yeah. and uh, you face this conflict, and you ask yourself, what should I do? So mm -hmm. this is the situation. The, the ontological philosopher also is addressing, 
And in my view, uh, moral identity really becomes important when you face this interest, I mean, these conflicting interests and goals you have in your life. Yeah. Of course, you want to be successful, and at the same time, you want to be moral. Mm-hmm. And moral identity uh, helps you to kind of prioritize morality in this context of conflicting goals and interests and desires. Um, and kind of provides an additional motivation to, um, in the end, follow what you think is the better thing to do from a moral point of, of view. Yeah. And then, of course, like what you think is the better thing to do. Like, if you're getting conflicted, you could imagine a situation in which deontology would divert a moral action away from what a virtue ethics perspective might think is a moral action in a, in a given situation. So like when I think about deontological systems, I start to immediately think about duty-based ethics and yes. doing something because not because you want to, but because you feel it's the right thing to do. And so to some extent, you have to, to maintain a form of morality. Well, that's another important aspect you, you're um, kind of um, pointing at is uh, the, the type of motivation that is involved uh, when we actually do the right thing. Right. I mean, um, yeah. So a, a strictly deontological kind of perspective on it would say you only do it because it's the right thing to do and nothing else. Right. Um, whereas from a virtuous perspective, uh, you would say things, no, that's not enough. You really kind of, pers- I mean, deeply want right. this to be this type of person, and yeah. therefore you want to do it. So this this is the genuine, the the the, the real motivation, more motivation. I think from a psychological perspective, it is not necessary to really pitch these two things against each other. It is, I mean, any human activity, whatever we do in a, in our life, we very often have more than just one goal to do these things. I mean, very simple. Of course, you want to have a good exam, uh, but at the same time, you want to graduate and you want to get a certain job. These are all goals that kind of form a hierarchy, uh, but they, they it's, it doesn't make sense to say in this context the one goal is kind of more important than the other. They are all important at the same moment. And I think the same with morality. Uh, you can say, of course, I can be motivated um, to be honest in a given situation because I feel honesty is the right thing to do here, to be honest. At the same time, you have the idea that you want to be an honest person, and that's why you kind of that, or that backs up the deontological motivation just yeah. to do what you consider right. Uh, so, I don't see this, uh, unfortunately, I mean, we have these different philosophical traditions that kind of uh, emphasize different motivations people have, but from a psychological perspective, it's not necessarily a conflict. And as psychologists, kind of, we need to be careful not to be drawn away too much from different philosophical views because they don't help us in really bringing things together as they are in people's lives. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that I think some of it gets to be just kind of a, a point of semantics as opposed to really changing the meat of the issue. But um, I, I was fascinated by, I would love to get into now your um, developmental aspects of moral identity because um, one of them that I had read about was this idea of intention or volition. So you had mentioned in your paper that 
infants, young babies and toddlers will sort of automatically have an inclination to um, do things that are pro-social. Although the caveat being that typically it's non-costly pro-social behavior. Um, Yes. And it seems like you were conceptualizing intentionality developing when people start to do costly pro-social behaviors. Can you tell me a bit about um, just more flesh that yeah. out for me. And uh, yeah. Why so, that I mean, of course, the, the question that comes up or has to come up at a certain point, we talk about moral identity, about this sense of who do I want to be and the importance of morality to define your own identity. And it's obvious, it's self-evident uh, that a newborn baby doesn't have that. I mean, uh, um, and, um, and also, as you said, at, right at the beginning of the interview, it doesn't fall from the sky. So where does it come from? I mean, right. And... Um, that is a question that really has kind of troubled me uh, and still is troubling me because I have to admit I don't have the final answer at this point. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm trying to, to, to find my way through yeah, this yeah. jungle. And um, uh, the idea is, I mean, uh, a kind of a model that when we talk about more identity, I think it's really important to talk about motivation, what motivates people to act. Um, so I consider more identity particularly relevant in that context. And there are basically three layers of motivation, of more motivation. Uh, we all have probably. Um, there is first uh, this spontaneous, um, almost involuntary uh, desire to, to be good and to help others. And, mm. um, and uh, this is something that actually can be shown with all the methods stuff I mean psychology like to use using experiments you can show that already 14 to 15 month old kids they can barely walk um, want to help others uh, to achieve their goals mm-hmm. um, there's a funny I mean experience um, that has been done now by the Tomasello group in Leipzig um, where an experimenter drops something uh, and uh, pretends not being able to reach <laughs> The, maybe the clothespin or uh, whatever, and says, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Doesn't say, please help me. It's just say, oh. And a 13, 14-month-old child is watching that maybe for 10, 15 seconds, not really knowing <laughs> what is going on here. And then he or she walks over, takes the clothespin, and gives it to the experimenter. And, and that is a reliable um, thing. And interestingly, I mean, this child was not asked to help. This child is not kind of, uh, uh, I mean, the behavior is not reinforced. It's not uh, praised. The child doesn't get anything out of it. Um, but it will repeatedly do, or he or she will repeatedly do this. Uh, and that tells people that this kind of pro-social motivation is really um, intrinsic. I mean, hmm. and it is very agentic because whatever you do, spontaneously, without being asked, without being reinforced to do that, that is something you do out of yourself. Mm. There's nothing else that motivates you to do this, just your spontaneous intention or inclination to do that. And I think that is a very important core should not forget when we talk about more identity, because that is a foundation on which more identity later on uh, somehow has to build on. Now, as you say, this is low-cost behavior, and it's not doesn't yeah doesn't cost much the child uh, to do this, and uh, 
But we still see the similar tendencies uh, in a little bit older children that they spontaneously engage in pro-social actions um, without being asked, without being reinforced to do that. And uh, um, that is an important dimension of moral motivation where I think the self, the moral self, is immediately present in the action. Now, morality is not just about helping others in situations where it's obvious that I want to help, but it is very often about conflicting yeah. aspects, conflicting goals. Um, um, and um, so children, as you know, or I mean, when they get a little bit older, you do not only observe this pro-social action, but you also observe a lot of aggression, a lot of instrumental aggression, particularly, right? I mean, I want to play with this toy. That's why I just take it from the other child. Mm. And uh, I don't care whether that child is crying or not. I mean, yeah. um, so there is the same spontaneous tendency to be aggressive. Yeah, mixed if you want. bag. <laughs> yeah. It's a mixed bag, definitely, and that's why we, in the long run, I mean, develop what I call kind of a volitional self, where um, um, children are able to kind of, um, I mean, there's one philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who created the term, I mean, second-order desires, so you don't want to be a certain type of person, or you do, don't right. want to be... Um, you don't want to do certain acts in the first place, right? You are able to prioritize things you think are better or right um, over uh, other things you think that are not good or that they're wrong to do. Mm -hmm. This is an essential ability children need to learn. Um, but at that point, they don't necessarily need to have a moral identity. It's just I know it's not good to do that, that's why I don't want to do it, or I, it's not good to take away this toy from a mother child, and that's why I, I don't want to do this, right? Um, that's the volitional self. You, you actually um, develop an idea what is better to do in a given situation. Even though you feel this conflict, um, you develop this conception. And then I say, that's a third layer that, that comes later. Um, in order to back up this volitional self, we later on develop a moral identity because it's not just I know it's wrong, mm -hmm. but you somehow develop this idea and this is I don't want to be the type of person who is doing this okay. stuff to others. So these are the three layers. I mean, you, you spontaneously develop uh, pro-social inclinations. We see that in children. Around the age of six, seven, um, children develop more and more a volitional self where they can prioritize more goals over other goals. But at that time, they don't have a moral identity yet. Uh, and moral identity comes in later where you can, uh, where this volitional self is kind of backed up by an idea uh, that a conception of a certain type of person I want to be, and I want to maintain that moral identity in the actions actually I do. So, moral motivation is comp complex, if you want. It's not just a homogeneous, one-dimensional concept, but there are different aspects that come together that in the end is explain um, the motivation to act yeah. morally. You had also mentioned like uh, self-determination theory yeah. came up a fair amount in your papers. And for 
listeners who might not know what self-determination theory is, it's essentially a theory of motivation that posits that the degree to which a motivation is intrinsic matters for the frequency of that behavior and um, just, of course, identifying with it, it being internal. And so you had mentioned that in this developmental process, often later versions of intentionality, you might move from being in an introjected phase. That's a phase in which you're doing something not necessarily because you want to, but because you want to hold up others' expectations. Um, and I wondered if that's maybe, like one of the criticisms of self-determination theory is that it might privilege uh, a Western view that prioritizes autonomy over other considerations like community. And so I'm wondering to what degree this conceptualization, this piece of needing it to be intrinsic um, might make the moral identity concept a Western concept. Does that make okay. sense? Okay, um, yeah, I, I, I think I can follow the way of, of thinking. Um, one thing is really important uh, that when you mention self-determination theory, self-determination theory consists of various, um, they call it mini-theories or sub-theories, and uh, one I, theory, uh, one theory component says there's uh, three basic psychological needs um, right. we have, and these needs are universal. Um, so it's the first, the need for relatedness, to be in good relationship with others and to feel also um, respected and appreciated by others. Then it's what they call the need for competence, just to be effective in your actions. Uh, you do yeah. something and you experience yourself as someone who can do stuff, put it that way. And, and then there's the need for autonomy that you feel the actions you perform come from yourself. They're not forced on you from external circumstances. Mm. And these are universal needs according to self-image theory, so they are independent of any cultural background. Now, of course, cultures vary a lot with regard to how we express these needs and how we mm. meet these needs, uh, and there are different configurations, but the needs are always there. And um, moral identity now, I think, is not just a need for autonomy in terms of well, being independent of others, but moral identity actually somehow brings together these three different universal needs, the re need for relatedness, for being effective, and for being the author mm. of your own actions. So I'm not sure that the concept of moral identity um, actually um, is as such um, culture-specific, it is totally, I mean, acceptable and clear that what people understand uh, as moral is to some extent influenced by um, our um, cultural culture, yeah. background and the culture we live, we grow up in. But this aspect of taking in certain uh, values and ideals and norms and making them your own and think, this is the type of person I want to see, uh, I want to be, I want to m see myself as this type of person. Yeah. This is certainly a, a universal um, developmental trend. Okay. Yeah. And so what else, um, 
what else is needed developmentally for moral identity? We've talked about the intentionality piece, but what else is there? So the very important is this, as I said, and this intrinsic motivation we we observe in younger children um, to act morally, and um, that the piece that. Uh, um, tells us a lot about, I mean, what is needed is, comes from another aspect of self-determination theory um, where they um, look into, um, this is called organismic integration theory, where they look into what kind of painting practices, for instance, generally help um, children and teenagers, and maybe even adults, I mean, to integrate mm -hmm. certain aspects that are first, I mean, part of their culture, to to so to move from an kind of an external to an internal mode of self-regulation, and um, it has been studied in hundreds of studies, um, not so much directly with moral hmm. um, matters, but in many other areas, health-related issues, for instance, uh, and people in this area of self-regulation theory call it autonomy support. So you. Hmm support children or teenagers or adults um, in their autonomy and that helps them to integrate uh, rules, values, norms into their own self. And that means, for instance, um, that you uh, do not, you provide some choice, um, that's one thing. And next thing is that uh, you give a rationale for why it is important um, to follow certain um, rules or to um, do uh, things and um, a third aspect is uh, the acknowledging of negative emotions right you acknowledge that sometimes it's not fun to do this or that but it is still important to do it and these are I mean three elements are there are others I mean but we don't have to go through the whole list uh, um, and all these different uh, uh, aspects of supporting uh, children or adolescents in um, integrating external regulations so that they become internal to the self help a lot in order to um, um, develop a more internal form of moral identity. And that also gives us an answer why, for instance, is moral identity much lower in the context of school or work because mm -hmm. These contexts are typically what self-determination theory calls coercive. Um, yeah. They put a lot of pressure on people. Uh, they are highly competitive. Uh, you have to meet deadlines. Uh, and it's very instrumental. So whatever you do in the school or work context is not so much about your immediate kind of desires and, uh, and goals, your personal goals, but it's instrumental to achieve something else. Yeah. And uh, these are contexts... Uh, that do not support autonomy. Yeah, that uh, reminds me of what you had been mentioning earlier about, you know, growing up at a time when people in Germany were really trying to figure out what had happened during World War II. And it seems like, I mean, clearly being involved in the military is, is also, I mean, coercive in a way. Like, yes. I imagine it being very much, like, top-down, Yes. I do this because somebody told me to type of thing. Um, so in your studies of moral identity, have you found any, like what seems to predict 
globalizing of moral identity as opposed to, you know, having a moral identity at home but not in the military and not at work and that sort of thing? I mean, again, I can refer to self-determination theory first. We don't want to live in, um, in, a, in a world where we basically fall into different pieces. Uh, so I am this type of person in my family, but I'm this type of person at work. And um, self-determination theory would call this a fragmented self. Um, yeah. And uh, that is generally considered something... Um, um, I mean, there is, according to this theory, uh, an organismic trend to integrate yeah. uh, even conflicting aspects of yourself and to develop a sort of homogeneous uh, self. And um, the autonomy support also is relevant for developing an integrated self that cuts across different domains. Um, on top, I would, of course, think that... Uh, here also things, I mean, reflection come in, are important. Uh, people reflect about uh, conflictual aspects of their own self. And as they reflect upon that, they also, I mean, maybe come to the point that uh, they become more consistent. Uh, there's one interesting um, study I did some time ago um, where we confronted people with, the, with their own conflictual past. Hmm. and um, ask them, so uh, imagine uh, uh, something you did in the past uh, where you would say, today this was not okay. Mm. Um, so you confront people with their own immoral self okay. of the past, if you want. And, uh, and it's and very interesting how people react to that. I mean, some become very defensive and say, mm. you know, this has nothing to do with myself anymore. This is past, this is done. Um, I, I just, I'm, I, I want to get over this. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas others make a direct connection between uh, uh, what you were in the past and what you are now and say, yes, this, they take kind of responsibility for what mm -hmm. happened in the past and say, I hope I have learned from that. And I hope if I ever come in a similar situation again, I would not do this again. And mm -hmm. I hope this, this situation in the past really taught me a lesson uh, that helps me now to become better. And interestingly, again, you find that a moral identity that is more internally defined helps people to confront themselves hmm. with conflicting self-aspects. Wow. Whereas an externally driven moral identity um, doesn't do that. I mean, it helps people more to fragment themselves and to push aside aspects they don't want to see. And um, here... This is basically the same process, the same movement, where we can say there is a tendency to, of the self to grow and to integrate conflicting aspects, and the environment needs to provide the right support for that. And if, then, if that happens, then we can hope that an integrated moral identity develops that really has trade-like characteristics. Yeah, interesting. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for moral identity researchers right now? Um, you already mentioned one. It's the rather limited uh, method or I mean, the, the rather limited range of methods we okay. can use. Uh, 
And um, this is very important whenever you do a psychological study that rely on, on work that has been done uh, in the past by others you to, in order to have good access to empirical information. And mm -hmm. we right now, we really have a very limited um, arsenal of, of, of methods we can use. And okay. I would love to see a much broader um, um, range of different uh, methods uh, to use that helps researchers a lot. And the second you also mentioned already mm -hmm. in your interview is uh, um, we really should try to integrate um, different cultural perspectives on moral okay. identity. Uh, right now it is very much dominated by research from the West, I mean basically Europe and North America, but we would need much more okay. research um, that also includes um, collective, so-called collectivistic countries. Um, I mean, I've done some research with my own graduate students, Chinese from China, um, where we compared identity, more identity um, from students from China with students from Canada. But this is just the start. I mean, this is just one tiny study and it doesn't really uh, make a big difference at this, at this moment. So okay. more measures, better measures, a broader variety of measures, that also would include uh, kind of um, experience-based um, okay. uh, sampling and at the same time cultural variation. Are there any dark sides to moral identity? Like I, I could theoretically imagine somebody who has like a, for lack of a better phrase, a, a broken moral compass where they identify themselves as having a moral identity but their morality is uh, like an antisocial one or something like that. And that having an identification with yourself as being this particular set of moral contents might actually bolster that person's negative behaviors. What that... you, I mean, what you describe <laughs> is the classical definition of a hypocrite. Okay. I think a hypocrite who pretends to have a moral identity but doesn't care at all. Uh, that that would be, and, and, and I would, you would say it's a dark side, I would more say it's it's moral identity development gone wrong. I mean, I, I can easily imagine that at a certain age when it becomes important for children kind of to demonstrate their identity, their moral identity to others, um, that um, that is an important phase in, um, in the, in the course of more identity development, but then some children may kind of discover that I can strategically um, try to maintain a certain identity without actually caring hmm. about this aspect. So if it becomes more important for you or when it becomes more important for a person to demonstrate a moral identity, uh, then the actually more identity commitment uh, that, that is not present, then we have, I think, a more identity that um, is the identity of a hypocrite and, okay. and that uh, is more identity development gone the wrong way. Is that just a measurement issue? Is, no. It, okay. Uh, no. I mean, that's uh, uh, right now, I think, we don't really have um, a good conceptualization of that. I mean, because I mean, right now, we or the whole discussion in this interview also focused on moral identity if you want as one goal right people want to be uh, mm. uh, moral they want to maintain a self-view of being moral. but as a matter of fact i think 
there are two sub goals here. I mean, okay. of course, on the one hand, you want to maintain um, a certain self view as a moral person. On the other hand, you have um, aspirations when you will uh, more identity aspirations, and you want to kind of improve as a person. And if in once and it, and that can happen, it doesn't happen so often, but uh, it can happen that the person only cares about maintaining a certain self view but does not have any corresponding aspirations to be that mm. way, then um, uh, we uh, have to admit, yes, here, moral, moral identity works the opposite way. Okay. It actually helps people to do immoral things um, in situations where they can be safe and they know, okay, um, it, doesn't, it won't come back to me. And... Uh, they can actually demonstrate their moral identity to others without having any corresponding moral commitments, and um, that is a is an is a situation where the moral identity is well gone wrong. Could backfire. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or can so, backfire, yeah. what what are just kind of some of the biggest criticisms of moral identity and like? I guess this could be related or an unrelated question. What are your future directions and where do you hope research goes in unraveling more about it? Yeah, well, I already mentioned that um, certainly the cultural dimension of moral right. identity is okay. an important aspect that needs to be studied much more in detail. We need many more studies that are done in other cultural contexts. Uh, and... Um, I mean, the uh, uh, common criticism of this moral identity research is also that it relies a lot on people's self-report, that we ask people in in surveys or questionnaires um, directly, so how important is it for you to have certain self-aspects? Some people say uh, that is, of course, can be biased, uh, and uh, people respond in a socially desirable way, but they don't really respond authentically. I'm not sure whether this is really a dramatic problem, but it is a problem we also need to kind of take care of and make sure that we do not just assess more identity as a lip service people pay and without really looking deeper into is it authentic. And um, my personal view is, I mean, and, and this is perhaps also the the, 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 the end point uh, where I think I would perhaps stop to study more identity. Um, we really would need a, a lifespan view on mm. more identity development. It is clear that more identity is not uh, present at with newborns, right? It emerges some time in late childhood, um, adolescence, but then it, of course, continues to exist and change, <laughs> yeah. and um, that's most important, uh, until the very end. Uh, and I would love to really expand expand that view into a life-term perspective, where we have um, better understanding also, of course, what factors then mm. um, influence um, people's moral identity development as they become adults and uh, live the life of an adult person. Um, that is thing, a lot of things to do, I think, yeah. Do you have any um, hypothesis about how moral identity continues to develop after, let's say, 
after the 20s, once a person is 30s and older? Yes, uh, actually, I don't, I do not only have hypotheses. We had, we have some, done some studies. Some oh, cool. On that. Yes. Cool. Um, um, it's very interesting, again. Um, I mean, a little bit of back, uh, 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 ground, background here. Um, you all know of the big five, right? The big uh, five personality yeah. traits. Uh, and um, they have been studied um, in a life-term perspective, a life course perspective. And um, there are two traits that always come up as the two traits that significantly change in adulthood. Hmm. Whereas all the other three don't, and these are conscientiousness and agreeableness. Interesting. So conscientiousness and agreeableness consistently increase when people become older, um, hmm. whereas um, the others, well, don't basically show, don't show any significant mean level changes. And uh, now you know perhaps that conscientiousness and agreeableness are the typical of the moral factors, right? I mean that uh, 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 typically also strongly correlated with more actions, more emotions, and all these things. And uh, based on that finding, that was, well, there are meta-analysis that show that these are really robust trends. Yeah. Um, we also wanted to study exactly that and say, is, this, is there also perhaps an increase in moral identity that is partly maybe explained by this increases in, in these two factors, personality factors, but maybe also to some extent independent. And this is exactly what we find. I mean, we find that um, people's moral identity becomes stronger, especially uh, between 25 and 45. So when okay. you kind of enter work life, when you maybe uh, establish a family and have your own children, um, so um, that is what personality um, called, personality researchers call uh, the maturity principle. So you, you, as you grow older, you more and more are engaged in roles um, that require you to be a mature adult. And uh, that also helps you to adopt a more mature moral identity if you want. Um, and this, it's as interesting what we exactly found that the increase, the age-related increase in moral identity was only partially explained or attributable to this personality factor. So moral identity is really something that becomes stronger um, in the adult years. Um, and of course that, looking back, makes it even more important to make sure that adolescents develop the, the, the foundation for it, put it that way. But it is a lifelong process and um, it doesn't change. Um, it maybe. We also, I mean, we then had also older age groups in our sample. Uh, we saw some kind of flattening of this growth curve um, between 60 or 55 and 65. Uh, uh, and which perhaps has to do with when we did this interview that many people said, you know what, in the last 10 years, there wasn't much change in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but I can imagine then people then, I mean, face retirement and changes. Um, um, in their own lives, uh, that moral identity again becomes an important issue for them. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so last question because yes. we're out of time. But um, we talked a little bit about promoting at least uh, mo like making the motivation your own, internalizing motivation for children. 
for adults who are wanting to continue developing moral identity for themselves, do you have any advice or tips that are just like practical things you can do to help build your own moral identity? Or is this something that just has to happen naturally? A good point. Uh, I've never thought of it this way. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, the only thing I could is take your own morality seriously. Yeah. Um, that's most important. That Don't you be a kind hypocrite. Of the, what you think, <laughs> what they think is true and important, and take that seriously and don't push it aside. Yeah. 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 Very good. Well, thank you so much, Tobias. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.